Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Amlaw Deterrence Our host is Dr. Adam Laufel, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The Anwai Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrence and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of the cast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a truly great guest. Now, if you know the weapons labs and you know uh, the folks who have been designers and have been around for many years, then you obviously know the name Bruce Goodwin because he has had a long and distinguished career at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, where he now is a retired lab senior fellow at the Center for Global Security Research Bruce, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Well, thanks for having me here. So you have a publication, and I've, I've got it up on my screen, Nuclear Weapons Technology 101 for Policy Wonks. And a lot of folks have said good things about it and have said, you need to have Bruce on, have him talk about it so that the the NucleCast uh, listeners can, can have a, a ready source to better understand, uh, of course, nuclear weapons and design and these these sort of important things that you spent your career doing. So could you give us uh, sort of an introduction to the topic and and tell us, you know, about the your publication and, and what you think folks need to know and understand? Okay. Well, um, you know, when you work for 40 years in nuclear weapons design, you tend to assume that everybody knows everything you do, which is clearly wrong. <laughs> and so when I went to the Center for Global Security Research, uh, I was in the middle of a large number of what I'll call um, liberal arts majors, uh, political science majors, uh, people who worry about nuclear weapons policy. And it became apparent to me that many of them didn't understand how nuclear weapons worked and, and how that might affect policy. So I decided to write this little book. Um, and essentially, it goes through the basics of nuclear weapons design. It introduces the language of nuclear weapons design to them. It has a glossary as an example. Um, and so it sort of starts with the simplest nuclear weapons, you know, fission weapons uh, like Fat Man and little boy, gun and implosion weapons. Uh, and then it goes on to the next level of technical sophistication, the boosted fission weapon, uh, a single stage weapon, but one which uses a small amount of fusion to dramatically increase either the yield of the weapon or to dramatically reduce its size. The sort of the beginning of miniaturization. Uh, and then it moves on to hydrogen bombs, uh, the next stage uh, of development uh, of the nuclear weapon. And, uh, you know, that is a two-stage weapon as defined by the Ulam uh, Teller paper from 1951. Uh, and the, the, the whole point of the hydrogen bomb is driven by the fact that the yield, uh, the fission yield of, say, plutonium is about 17 kilotons per kilogram of material if you could get 100% efficiency, which you clearly can't. Um, however, the 
fusion yield of deuterium and tritium is 80 kilotons per kilogram. And so there's almost a factor of five in principle reduction, weight reduction, if you will, for a given yield if you go to a hydrogen bomb, which is why the hydrogen bomb was so appealing from a military point of view. You could have much smaller missiles. You could carry it on smaller aircraft. You could miniaturize the weapon. Uh, and that is, in fact, historically what Lawrence Livermore did in the early to, middle to late 50s uh, in developing the first Polaris warhead. So that is, in a nutshell, kind of what goes on there. But there's an awful lot of detail between those topics. And uh, the book does cover those details in a language that I think a political science major could understand. Now, this has been, you know, you you bring up an interesting topic because this idea of, you know, social scientists and weapons designers, physicists, nuclear engineers, chemists, having to take the actual weapons and then the policy, the strategy, the doctrine, the adversary understanding, and somehow work together has been one of those those topics where I I don't know what you're take on it is but where we sort of talked past each other over the years because we you know we sort of each have our own you know for me as somebody who's a international relations guy it talking past each other has been a, a a challenge and so for you as somebody who spent your time you know at a lab as a designer what have you what sort of lessons have you taken away as you know like whenever i started coming to livermore uh, almost 20 years ago and, and talking with guys like you and, and others and sitting in briefings. And, and I came as a air force guy and, and you're talking to lots and lots of air force guys over the years. What, what kind of lessons did you learn about how to talk to, to air force guys, how to talk to, you know, faculty who were not, you know, weapons designers, you know, political science professors and, and how to talk to the policy wonks and all of these different folks who weren't spending their years doing what you did. What lessons did you learn about how to talk to them? Okay. Well, I, I think what I learned, I started to detect very quickly. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it's sort of going, let me put it, the military guys, the air force guys, uh, the Navy guys, they tended to understand more of the jargon than the political scientists, the professors, the, the government officials, you know, who, who write policy, who, who determine policy ultimately. And so I, I wouldn't say it happened quickly, but I gradually learned what language was understandable and what language was just nerd speak, to be blunt. Uh, and so I tried to get rid of the nerd speak. And if I had to use the nerd speak, I tried to define it in the conversation, you know, explain what I was talking about. Um, and, and, uh, one of my first presentations at CGSR, I, I very much appreciated the feedback from a, actually a visiting Polish, uh, political scientist who had listened to the unclassified presentation. And he basically gave me a list of terms that, he had no idea what I was talking about. And so I, I then revised my talk. And it was also he who motivated me then to write the little book that I wrote about nuclear weapons technology 101. 
Um, because there's no point in talking to somebody if you're not speaking a language that they understand, to be blunt. And nerd speak is not something that most people understand. I, I don't mean to call out just policy wonks, but just the public in general. Uh, you know, nuclear weapons designers speak a very strange language, and one has to avoid that language if you're going to explain yourself to the world. So as you've made presentations to these sort of non-technical crowds over the years, in your evolution... I'm sorry, of, even even to technical crowds, because they don't necessarily deal with the same technology that you deal with. You know, I can be talking to a physicist from Berkeley, and if I use nuclear weapons design nerd speak, they don't know what I'm talking about either, because it's a very special language that's within that my community. Of designers, so uh, so you know, the the onus is on me. I am the problem, and I have to fix it. Now, let me that you bring up a great point, and I'm I'm glad you you mentioned that. And it's this idea of who bears the burden of creating the understanding. Is it you know the the political scientist or the policy wonk or whomever who's like. You know, this guy's just too dumb to deal with. Or is it, you know, the really smart physicist who says, hey, listen, it's the the onus is is upon me to make sure that this guy who has a you know expertise in some other area uh, understands my area. Do you find that that in terms of your perspective of, hey, I'm the one who needs to make sure people understand what I'm talking about. Do you see that as, is sort of broad across the spectrum that everybody sees it that way? Or do you think people sort of, you know, expect, you know, the, the non-expert in their area to sort of come to them as opposed to the other way around? What, what's been your experience? Well, I'm look, I assume that I'm responsible for making myself understood now, the problem does go in the other direction. You know, a policy wonk has their special uh, terminology, if you will. And when they use it with me, like that Polish physicist, a Polish political scientist, um, I ask them what they mean. Because if I don't understand something they're talking about, I ask them what that is and ask them to define it for me. And eventually that leads to a very useful conversation because they get the fact that they don't necessarily speak a language that I understand. So it is a mutual process that that maybe I initiate, or in the case of the Polish political scientist, he initiated. And as a result, we understand each other a whole lot better now. And I hope that I'm being, I'm not using too much nerd speak with you. <laughs> now, as we've, you know, as you spent time over the course of a career, you know, a 40 year career, and you know, you come in as a, as a young engineer, you, you learn your technical sp- skills and then then you have to start reaching beyond your you know very narrow technical community out to a, you know your customers you know the air force the navy and and the policy community what did you what sort of lessons did you take away with um how to be the most effective i mean you, you talk a lot about this you simplify it for folks in the book so you write it out in a way that that is understandable for that non 
technical expert, but as you built, you know, internal lessons over the years to say, okay, well, here's the audience I'm going to be speaking to, you know, reducing jargon, uh, simplifying, knowing the audience and knowing what their area was. If you could sort of create a list for me of, for potentially younger designers uh, who might be speaking to non-technical audiences, policy wonks for the first time, uh, what, what would be those lessons that you would impart to them? You know, I think the first thing I would say is, is a very high-level statement of understand who your customers are. And you have more than one customer out there, you know. Uh, your customer, your immediate customer is presumably the, the laboratory that you work for. But that's, that's straightforward. You know, if you haven't figured that out, you're not going to last very long. But beyond that, you know, as examples, the Navy is a customer. The Air Force is a customer. The Department of Energy is a customer. And they're all different. Uh, and the problem with physicists, and it's more with physicists than engineers, uh, is that they're arrogant. They think that they, they understand the universe, okay? And they speak as if they do. And I, I had a, early on with a, one of, with a chief scientist from the Navy, from SP, Strategic Programs, I got taken down very usefully when I was speaking to him. Um, he understood what I was talking about, but he didn't like the approach I was taking. And so he let me know in no uncertain terms that, you know, I was an arrogant little nerd and, <laughs> and, he, wa and he wasn't going to put up with it. You know, and this was, this was 40 years or 35 years ago. Uh, and that was a good lesson to learn, you know, because when, when you're talking to the chief scientist of strategic programs in the Navy, you're talking to somebody who is your customer and you need to be very respectful, careful and accommodating. And so that is a, a lesson that if once you sort of step beyond the engineering design function and you actually have to speak to the customers and understand their needs, you need to listen carefully and not be an arrogant physicist. As it turns out, he was an arrogant physicist, but he was the customer. <laughs> so, yeah. The, now it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Bruce Goodman and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Bruce Goodwin, and he's got a great, a great little book, Nuclear Weapons Technology 101 for Policy Wonks. And we've been talking about this, and you know, it's, and I don't know if the, the number of folks who are sort of intrigued about this topic, because for me as a guy who used to go to Livermore three or four times a year and, and would bring other Air Force groups to talk to designers and others, it was whenever we decided to talk about the topic, I was like, oh man, this is a great one because this is one I've dealt with myself. But if you haven't dealt with the topic, people may be scratching their heads and so as you were to, if you were to take your lessons learned that we've talked about for this specific topic, and you were to broaden it out for a larger nuclear audience, and, and Nuclecast listeners, or some will be in SSP, some will be in Air Force Global Strike, there's 
you know, guys and gals from the labs that listen, there's contractors. It's a, you know, there's folks from the nuclear energy world. If you were to sort of broaden out your lessons, because it's, it's not just a nuclear physicist to policy wonks problem. It's a much bigger challenge that, that people across different career fields face. What would be your bigger, broader sort of, Hey, Hey listener, you know, you can you can prevent the takedown I faced, you know, 35 years ago. If you do these things, what would those things be? And I think you probably hit on a couple already, but what, what additional insights would you offer? Listen. I mean, listening to whoever you're talking to and what they're saying and how it affects what you're saying is, is fundamental. I mean, beyond if you don't listen, you're dead. Okay. Um, and, and I should say, it's not just your customer may be the other nuclear weapons laboratory and having worked at both labs, I worked at Los Alamos for four years and I, then I came to Livermore. Things are different and culturally different. And you need to listen in order to under, start to understand the culture of the other organization whether it's the Air Force, the Navy, the Department of Energy, the State Department, um, Los Alamos, uh, they're all very different, and you need, to, you need to appreciate their point of view when you're speaking to them. That doesn't mean you don't go in, get into conflict with them, because you may need to, but you need to do it in a professional and, uh, for me at least, a gentlemanly way. So uh, attitude matters um, fundamental to everything i think if that is if that helps oh it does it does now so we're at a you know in sort of in the geostrategic environment today you know we, that people talk about the three body problem they you know there's you know the the russian threat the north korea threat the china threat every, all these threats are are growing they're not shrinking so sort of the post post cold war peace era is over it would seem and one of the big challenges is in, you know, weapons design. Do we need new weapons? You know, do we have enough weapons? And so for you as a, a guy who was at the labs, you know, you were there at the end of the Cold War and then you've been there, you know, through the period of peace. And now for you looking forward after having spent a long career, how would you or what? advice would you give for folks trying to explain particularly from the labs to explain sort of what they think is going to be required in the years ahead? How, you know, what advice would you give them? You know, what, what would you say in terms of how to go out, you know, in the sort of the, if you look at congressional politics, presidential politics, and, and, and you have to try to work in that environment to do what's best for the nation. It's, it's certainly no easy task. And as we've talked about explaining, you know, nuclear for policy wonks and understanding and conveying the technical element, what advice do you give those folks who now have that task in a new environment? Well, you know, this, this comes down to another, and I'll use this term in quotation marks, another customer. One of the things that I learned uh, quickly after the end of the Cold War 
Uh, I learned when I went to Arzamas and Snezhinsk, the two nuclear laboratories in Russia, uh, and especially at Snezhinsk when I met with my counterpart there, um, I hadn't appreciated, if you will, the level of animosity. And you can imagine having lost the Cold War, they were not happy campers. And they made it very, very clear to me that they were as smart as I was, if not smarter, and that they were as capable, if not more capable than me or, or the United States in making and deploying nuclear weapons. Um, and that, that was a little surprising because I went there, um, actually I went there bringing them money, you know, to keep them from leaving the country, from going to wherever, North Korea or whatever. And I hadn't appreciated how giving them $10 million was going to make them angry. So, you know, you never know what you're going to be faced with. And I think you need to understand going forward that they love their country and they're not very fond of the United States or the West. And I don't, I'm sure the same is true of China, though I hadn't had that experience in China. Um, and so ensuring strategic stability is ultimately, you know, the product of nuclear weapons deterrence. Um, and how does one do that? Well, do the weapons of 1972 meet the needs of 2023? And that may or may not be the case. So from a technological point of view, from a scientific engineering point of view, we have to be able to adapt uh, we also have to be able to sustain weapons that are 40 or 50 years old. That means they may have to be refurbished. Uh, they, may have, they will certainly have to be life-extended. And we're in the process of doing a few of those at Livermore currently. Uh, and so one needs to be very um, realistic, circumspect, uh, and understand that what you're doing can, can, in fact, make something worse. So how do you do that carefully? And it's, it's a collaborative thing, you know, and you need to listen to everybody involved in the process. You have to listen to the red teams uh, from the other laboratories and from the armed services that come and look at what you're doing and say, hey, Bruce, that's all screwed up. <laughs> and here's why it's screwed up. And you'd better, you'd better not be arrogant. You'd better be listening and understand that they may, in fact, be right. And how do you account for that? How do you, how do you avoid um, errors? Because errors are consequential. And they're doing the same thing over there, you know? They made it very clear to me that they were making weapons, that they were making new weapons, they were designing weapons, and, and that they had their own stockpile stewardship program that allowed them to do that without nuclear testing uh, because they have a hell of a database too. You know, we may have 1,054 nuclear tests under our belt, and that covers an awful lot of technical space, um, but so do they. And I don't know the exact number that they've got, but uh, they're very competent, capable adversaries, and we need to be very respectful of them, but also very realistic about them. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good point. So, so one more thing, so, and that's, that's why the conversation sure. with the policy wonks is so important. Because, in fact, you know, what will deter 
10 years from now may not be what we have in the arsenal today. And it's the policy wonks who figure that stuff out, in a sense, in collaboration with the, with the weapons design laboratories, weapons engineering laboratories. And so that conversation is very, very important. What can we do today and in order to ensure that 10, 20, 30 years from now, deterrence is still stable and the world is safe? Do you think that the conversation between the engineers and physicists, the designers, is where it needs to be in regard to the conversation that goes on between those technical experts and the, you know, the policy wonks and those folks who are contemplating, you know, the strategy and policy and doctrine that we're, we have, or will eventually move to, is that conversation where it needs to be? You know, I think we've gone through a transition. Okay. When, when I first came into this work in 1981, which is a long time ago, um, the people that were in Washington were people who had been doing the work themselves, okay, at the labs and, and elsewhere and in the military. And so they were very hands-on, they, or they had been hands-on, and they had transitioned, if you will, to the policy role. Um, I think that that has changed uh, over the years. Um, the, the people who are in policy in Washington are much, many fewer of them are people who have come out of the technical areas. They're people, and, and that's neither good nor bad. That means they bring a different perspective uh, and a different expertise. And so one of the reasons the laboratory established, I mean, Ron Lehman, Ambassador Lehman established the Center for Global Security Research at Livermore was in order to bring these, the policy community and the technical community together in one place and have them talk directly to each other over a period of time, you know, a year or more for the people who come in from the policy world and spend time with us here at the laboratory. So, you know, it's done differently today. But I think it's done effectively, and I think it is working. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear because, you know, that's been one of the big challenges for, you know, for somebody like me who I've probably got 15 or 20 years left in a career after, you know, I'm, well, close to 30 years in. And so I've got that 15 to 20 left, and I'm, as I look at the, uh, you know, guys like Keith Payne, for example, who are sort of moving into retirement, you're moving into retirement. So the, those people who I looked up to and who trained me, and then now myself and this much smaller group that are about my age, and then the folks coming in behind, I too sort of wonder, like, are we going to have, you know, the required both technical and sort of policy strategy folks who are going to be there to, you know, do the work that's going to be required, you know, in these decades ahead as, as this sort of competition or conflict between potentially additional and growing nuclear powers sort of gets underway. And, and I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure. So I, I'm curious what your thought is. Do, well, do we you know, have the, the people I think we certainly have the people. The question is, are they properly educated or trained? You know, do they see the big picture? Do they, do they understand what 
is going to need to be done and how to do it. You know, and, and so, you know, people tend to think of CGSR as a place where we bring interns in from the outside, from the military, from the government uh, in order to interact with us. But in fact, half of the people at CGSR are technical people from within the laboratory who come to do a one or two year internship at CGSR, if you will, to learn the politics, to learn the policy uh, of of the technical work that, that they do at the laboratory and then return to technical work at the lab, having been educated. So can I guarantee that this is going to work? No. On the other hand, I can't think of a better way to, to try to make it work. So uh, if I could, I would suggest a change. But I think, it's, I think we're on the right path. Now, it's that time in the Nuclecast podcast where I bring out Bob, the genie. And if I rub my magic lamp, Bob, of course, grants three wishes to all guests. But they cannot be wishes for world peace or fame and fortune or good looks. They have to be related to the topics we've been discussing. So, Bruce, what is your first wish from Bob? (laughs) My first wish from Bob is that we, in fact, sustain uh, a, a credible stockpile stewardship program. And that means doing real work that we actually either rebuild weapons that we've got, modify weapons that we've got to make them longer lived, or design new weapons as required in order to sustain the deterrent that we've got. And I think, I think we're in that process now, and it's, it looks like it's working. But I wish that it continues and is successful. Let's okay. See. That, that's, a good, <laughs> that's a good wish. I mean, I, I, could, I can give you – that's a thumbs up on wish number one. Now, let's go to wish number two. Oh, boy, you're demanding, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you got three. Bob, you're a customer Bob gives here. three. Bob gives three. You know, I, I, I'm hoping that we are successful in attracting the best and the brightest to come to the laboratories, whether they're policy people or technical people, but we are technically oriented at the labs. So we need to be getting the best engineers and physicists to join the nuclear weapons program to sustain, to accomplish that wish number one, because without the best and the brightest, we're hamstrung, aren't we? And wish number three, wish number three, um, ultimately everything comes down to money, doesn't it? You know, if you can't, if you can't pay the best and the brightest, they won't come. So we need to sustain the nuclear deterrent budget. And that's a tough, that's probably the hardest one there because, you know, when you're, what do we need more nuclear weapons for, right? Isn't the world at peace? So you, you know, whether it's at peace or at war, you need to have a defense budget. And so I wish my wish number three is that that is successfully sustained. Okay. Three good wishes. Uh, any, so if, if, as we're wrapping up the show and you were to sort of give a, a takeaway message to the listeners, what would that takeaway message be that you want them to remember a month or three months or six months from now? Okay. Well, you know, I was born in 1950 and my parents and grandparents lived through major world wars. And I have only had to experience what I'll, I mean, I, no war is minor, 
but I have not had to go through the trauma uh, in life that they went through. I have lived through 72 years of peace. And yeah, I'm trying to remember the, 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 the um, political science, uh, Gaddis. Uh, Gaddis refers to this as the long peace. And he attributes it, and I think very rightly, to nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons made world war impossible. And so, you know, this notion of a world without nuclear weapons, I think, is a, is a vain, very dangerous concept. We need to have nuclear weapons in order to sustain the peace of the world. It has worked. And if we do it right, it will continue to work indefinitely. And so nuclear deterrence is the thing that I would like people to take away, that it is an important thing and it needs to be sustained. All right, Bruce Goodwin, thanks for joining us on Nuclecast. Hey, thanks for inviting me. It's been fun. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode, and we'll see you next time. Well, we had a great conversation. Uh, you know, I, Bruce, I, I met Bruce, I don't know, 15 years ago or so when I started going to uh, Lawrence Livermore uh, to see what they were working on. And, you know, the Air Force was, that was sort of the Air Force lab. And so Bruce was always there. He was a senior leader in the lab at the time. And so now that he's winding down his career and he's, you know, he's had this chance to start looking back and he's been able to write about nuclear weapons, you know, design for policy wonks. It's, it's, you know, really interesting to talk about these things and some of the stories that Bruce had and reflected on I thought were, you know, really interesting and, and I was glad he, he offered those up. So it's, um, you know, as we sort of get to that point in our lives where we reflect back on, you know, on things, it gives us a sense of perspective and hopefully wisdom to, you know, make the world a better place and, you know, to help others from making our own mistakes. So I'm, I'm glad we had Bruce on and, and I, you know, I didn't even know bef before we started talking, I didn't even know about, his uh the little book he's done nuclear weapons technology 101 for policy wonks and it's on the cgsr website so make sure you go get it and give it a read this has been a production of the anwa deterrence center our executive producer is kimberly charrington and this episode has been engineered and mixed by david Frontal. follow the show on linkedin facebook and twitter at nuclecast Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.